Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Behind the Business Book. I'm your host, Derek Lewis, and today I have with me Michelle DeFilippo, uh, who is the founder of 1106 Design, uh, a book design and author marketing firm out of Phoenix. Um, she is the author of Publish Like the Pros. She's the co-host of Mentoring Mondays, Colin show that answers authors' questions. Um, what, uh, you know what, actually, let me put a pin in that and keep on going because I was about to get sidetracked. Um, so, Michelle, I want to publicly congratulate 1106. You were recently named as the only full-service book design firm recommended by Ingram Spark. Ingram Spark, um, if you're not familiar with uh, with your self-publishing and print-on-demand options out there, they're really two giants. There's uh, Amazon's CreateSpace, and then Ingram is the largest distributor of books in the world, and Ingram's print-on-demand arm is Ingram Spark. And uh, Michelle's firm was recently named as um, their only full-service book design firm recommended by them. So congratulations on that, Michelle. That is, a, I think, an outstanding recognition of the quality and value that you bring uh, to, your, to your authors and to the industry. Well, thank you, Derek. We we are thrilled, of course, to 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 be listed on their resources page, and and I still can't quite believe it myself. I think I want to pinch myself and make sure I'm not dreaming. But um, it, it is uh, it has been uh, a real delight to be sure. And thank you for having me today. I I appreciate the opportunity to uh, answer your questions and hopefully help your audience. You know, honestly, Michelle, it's not a, a surprise to to me. So full disclosure, uh, Michelle's uh, company, uh, 1106, did the the cover and the interior for my book, the Business Book Bible. And I mean, I know this is me bragging on my own child, but it is gorgeous. Y'all did an outstanding job. So no, it's not a surprise to me that y'all were recognized. And um, as to your uh, thanking me, I am uh, going to turn that around and thank you because I know that you've got a lot of authors, you've got all kinds of people um, that you're working with, and to take time out to come uh, talk to me about geeking out on uh, on typesetting is uh, was a pleasure for me. Well, I'm pleased to do it, Derek. Thank you. So going back to that pin that I was talking about um, to finish the introduction. And this is actually setting us up for the first part of uh, of this conversation. Your roots in the publishing industry actually go all the way back to Manhattan when you were with Crown Publishing, still a, a very well-respected publisher in, uh, in the industry. And you were a professional typesetter, which is super cool for me. And that's really what we're talking about uh, today. I, there, I haven't met anybody else, uh, Michelle, who has that that craftsmanship, that that background in um, in the art and craft that uh, that you do. So, would you mind just taking us on a little a little field trip, going back to what it was like whenever uh, whenever you just first starting out, and what typesetting was like back in the uh, the good old days. Back in the day, oh well, you're gonna you're gonna make me date myself here, but 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 yeah. Um, when I started in this business, typesetting was done with melted lead on machines called Mergenthaler typesetters. And they, they literally, uh, the operator would press a key 
and a mold would fall into place and hot lead would be poured into that mold. And then when the page was all made up, uh, then, then it would be used to print a page of, of, of type, which was then later pasted up and made into a book page. Um, it's hard to imagine now that, that anything ever got done using that method, but it did. <laughs> it, it, it really wasn't much different than Gutenberg, right? Yeah. And so I started working in the 1970s, and that's when, you know, we were still pretty much, and that at the time was considered high technology. It was faster than any other way that had been done before. And so that was the 1970s, and, and by the 80s, we were creating type with um, uh, uh, computers. There were, there were great big dedicated typesetting machines called uh, CompEdit typesetters by the Verityper company. And um, that was the first generation of computerized type. Of course, now that's changed quite a bit. And so um, by the 1980s, we were setting type with computers, computerized typesetting equipment, such as it was. The, the, the personal computer was coming on the scene, but we were still using dedicated, gigantic typesetting machines that, that weighed a couple of tons, and they cost you know, $50,000. And and the process wasn't really all that different from the hot lead method, where we would generate strips of paper, which were then cut and pasted up into a book. And so by the 1990s, then the, the personal computer changed all of that. Now we could see the page right on our screen. We could we could do what we wanted right on our screen, and then still come up with a a, a book page or a. a series of book pages in a relatively small amount of time. And of course, the technology just keeps changing and getting better and better. But what has happened recently, um, and there have always been standards of book design and type of typographic design that were followed all along through those technological changes. Uh, but what has happened now in the self-publishing arena is that uh, people who should know better are giving authors advice about typesetting their own books using Microsoft Word. And that, of course, is throwing the baby away with the bathwater. It, it's just not the way to go. And, and the market is now saturated with books that, that are really very poorly done. And of course, that, that makes those of us who've been in the industry for any length of time um, very upset. You know, let's, let's back up for a, a second, Michelle. So for you know, anybody, who doesn't really understand um, what typesetting is? It's it's for a lot of people, uh, typography is just uh, is just a, a font face, right? So they so the the idea of that they're being designed to actually how the words appear on the page is uh, was something new for me whenever I got into the publishing industry. So tell us a little bit about what typesetting. Um, entails. Later on, we've got some some visuals. We'll get down into um, looking at it literally black and white. But just uh, just in, in general, uh, a little intro into into the uh, the art. Well, what what we see now is that is that of course everyone has Microsoft Word on their desk and and Photoshop to create images or some variation of that software to put words and images together, and. Uh, what they wind up creating is something that is a product that looks something like a book, 
but it doesn't look like a book that's been professionally designed because, of course, you know, designers, book designers are trained and experienced to put those words and pictures together in a in a unique and creative way and following those standards of of uh, typography that I that I just began to mention. When a designer does a book, we're thinking on a very detailed level about how the words are spaced, how the letters are spaced, whether we're using paragraph indents or not, whether we're putting a line of space between the paragraphs. And I tell people all the time there's much more to designing a book than just picking a font and, and a font size and deciding that you want the margins to be half an inch. There's many more issues involved in terms of the what we call the color of the type. It, the spacing of the type creates a visual impression that we call a color, even when the, the type is only in black. So if you don't have that spacing right, one paragraph can look much tighter or looser than another paragraph, and you, you just have a, a, a very amateurish-looking page if you, if you haven't been trained and you're not experienced in dealing with all of the issues that are involved in typesetting. I, I don't know if I explained that properly. It, it, yeah. It's hard uh, to get across. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's why uniquely today we have uh, we have these visuals that we're going to get into here in a minute so that um, – you know, so that you can see, uh, you can, the word I'm looking for, Michelle, is present um, exactly what it is that, that typesetters do. But the, the takeaway being that there is uh, an artistry to the literal presentation of the page. So not just the, the font, but the spacing between the words, the spacing between the lines, the spacing on the, on the edge. And then some of the things that... Um, you introduced me to the the rivers of white, the the ladders, um, widows and, and orphans. But before we get down into the into the nitty gritty, um, let's talk about a why typesetting, professional typesetting, typesetting done well, why it is so important to the reader, and then why it is so important um, to the industry, so commercially. Or, in other words, how it how it impacts the the bottom line. Well, sure, I'll be happy to do that. And, and I guess what I would like to suggest is that everybody mentally now take yourself to your local bookstore and think about how how you browse books when you walk from shelf to shelf and you pick up one book or another. It's a sensory experience, right? It, there's something about that book that draws your eye. You know, you you might look at the cover for a moment. You might flip the book over and read the back cover, and then you flip through the pages, and you get an impression, a subliminal impression about whether or not that book contains credible advice for you. It's you don't really think about this on a conscious level, but something tells you that this book is serious, that it's going to help you, that it's worth the money, and then you you choose one and you bring it to the register, and then you hopefully go home and enjoy it. But you make that decision before you know anything at all about the content. So you could say that the design of your book is um, analogous to the, to the outfit you would wear on a job interview, right? You want to make the best first impression. You want 
the person who's interviewing you to immediately have this sense that you are a qualified person and that you're the right person for the job before you get to say a word. And so that's what your book design does for you, um, for the buyer. Now, from the reader, competent book design actually has been clinically shown to increase reading comprehension. So if you've gone through all the time and trouble to research and write a book, you certainly want people to understand what, you're, what you've written. If they are distracted by poor typography or poor design, they may put the book down and they may not get your message at all. So it's a really big risk not to hire an experienced book designer to give your book that package that is going to help people understand your words. And, and the third reason that book design is important is, is for yourself. Uh, you're going to be promoting the book. You're going to be telling everyone that you've written it. And so you need to be proud of it. And you need to know that it's the very best it can be because that will come through in your tone of voice and in your smile and in every other aspect of your behavior when you're telling people about your book. Yeah, Michelle, that brings to, to mind, I think... And I'm, I'm reaching back, you know, because we've been collaborating for a few years now. But I'm reaching back, and I think the the whole reason that I reached out to you in the first place was uh, I had I had worked with a couple of authors, uh, ghostwritten a, a book. It was it was a great book. They were they were two great people, all kinds of of experience. They. Um, it's just, it's a really great book. I was very proud of it. I'm still very proud of, of the content and uh, and what we did, especially considering some of the challenges. But uh, we got finished ghostwriting uh, the, the book, and they said, okay, well, we're going to go uh, get it printed, and uh, we'll send you a copy. So a few months went by, and then they sent me an email, hey, you know, we've got them, we've got them printed, got the cover design, uh, got it uh, going, and, and, and your copy is in the mail. I said, all right, so the package arrived, and I'm excited to see, you know, because this is, I'm not the, I'm not the author, I'm the ghostwriter, so it's not my baby, but it's um, kind of my, I don't know, my godchild, if you want to make the analogy. Uh, so I'm excited to see what it looks like, it's finally here. So I rip open the package, and, uh, and, and crack open the, the cover, and Michelle, they had just taken the Microsoft Word file that I had sent and just, you know, cut it instead of the page being eight and a half by 11, the letter size, they just cut the margins to where it was a six by nine page. And that was, that was almost the extent of what they did on the inside. So it's just like if you go to a seminar or presentation and somebody prints out um, the slide notes or their report or their handout in Microsoft Word, you expect it to look like it's printed out in Microsoft Word because that's what everybody uses. But whenever you, you know, are, are buying a $25 or $30 book and you open it and it looks like all it is is just Microsoft Word document with uh, two covers of a book, it was so disappointing. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. And in fact, that was one of the, that was the, the moment whenever I realized that I had to help my authors take the next step and, and find competent interior designers and typesetters, cover designers, so that they would actually end up with a great product versus something 
that I'm embarrassed for them to to have. Yeah, you're so you're so right, Derek. And and I don't actually blame authors for for doing it that way because if you go online now, the first thing that that you will find are a host of self-publishing companies and other so-called experts who tell you that you should format your own book and that you should design your own cover. And we'll give you a template and you can do it for free. You don't have to hire a book designer. That That is the message. In fact, you almost can't find firms like mine anymore because the companies that do this and, and in my view, victimize authors, they spend, and I did the research here, they spend $25,000 a month to come up first in the search engine. Oh. And, and it's, it's, it's just mind-boggling, you know? Their, and their whole reason for being is to, to cast a wide net and pull in as many authors as possible who have not done any research. And before they find out that they've been scammed, uh, the companies are out there servicing the next batch of authors that they reeled in. Um, It's quite astonishing and um, very difficult for anyone like myself who's been crafting good books for a long time. But it hurts the authors. And and now, now in some instances, I hear authors telling each other, don't self-publish. It, 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 it's, it's a scam. And it, but it's not if you do it correctly, if you follow the best practices of book design that have you know, been in practice for, for hundreds of years. You know, publishers never, a major publisher would never tell the author, go ahead and format your book in Microsoft Word and we'll run with it. Yeah. Uh, it, it the advice is, is just downright uh, silly. But if you type self-publishing into the search engines, that's that's the advice you're going to find. And at one time uh, I read something, or maybe it was in a conversation you and I had, you said that there is a difference between indie publishing, or maybe you used the word self-publishing, but there's a difference between that and, and do it yourself. Just because you self-published doesn't mean that you're doing everything yourself. Well, yeah. When, when uh, I don't know if anyone listening uh, is aware of Dan Pointer, he he's passed on now. But he basically, when Amazon first came on the scene, he recognized that authors would now be able to get to create a book and put it up online for sale without going through a traditional publisher or a traditional distributor. And he saw the opportunity in that, and his original vision came true. And he called this, at the time, self-publishing, which it is, right? The, the author is, is taking on the role of the publisher and doing all the things that the publisher would ordinarily do, which is to hire experts to craft, to edit a book and, and design the interior and design the cover and market it and so forth. Well, that went along for about 10 years and, and quite successfully, as a matter of fact. But then enter the self-publishing companies that I was just talking about. They, uh, they pitched their services to more of a consumer audience, not a professional audience. And they knew that the average consumer who has always wanted to write a book would not do all that work. They would want a, an easier solution. And so then they started with this do-it-yourself message. 
And so now I, I don't like to use the word self-publishing anymore. I like to use indie publishing, independent publishing, because self-publishing has been defined now as do-it-yourself publishing. Right. Independ independent publishing is you are an independent business owner in charge of your publishing enterprise. And there's two those are two entirely different ways to approach getting a book out there. And neither way is wrong. If if you just want to produce a book for your friends and family, then self-publishing is fine. But if you want to produce a book for clients and to, and to talk about your career or your coaching or you want to use a book to get uh, new business for yourself, you cannot follow the self-publishing method. You can't go the do-it-yourself route. And if you do, that's where all the trouble starts. Michelle, I didn't realize that uh, Dan Pointer had passed away. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, about a year ago. Yeah. I didn't realize that. The, uh, he was a giant. Yeah, the father of self-publishing. Yeah. I've got... Uh, I've got three, maybe four of his books right here on my bookshelf. Yeah, I learned uh, learned a lot from him. He's a brilliant man. Um, but you know, um, you saying that talking about uh, the the commercial aspect of of having a professionally designed book. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Michelle, I saw the the article where Barnes and Noble is going to start. Uh, allowing self-published or indie-published books uh, to be sold on their bookshelves alongside uh, uh, books that have been traditionally published. But I bet you a, a silver dollar that they're not going to have the kind of self-published, um, and I don't mean to say this derogatory, but, but in the industry, uh, from the industry perspective, amateurish books um, being sold on their on their bookshelves. Oh, oh no, they're 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 not. And and in fact, this uh, this recent announcement from Barnes and Noble, uh, it's a great headline. It sounded like uh, brand new something, some brand new opportunity. But it really isn't all that different than than the the uh, the small publisher program they've always had. Um, you still have to qualify. You have to have sold a thousand books on your own in the last year. And you're absolutely right, Derek, that they are not going to put a book on their shelf that is not properly designed and edited uh, and done the right way. Uh, because they know from experience that that, that kind of a book is not going to move off the shelf. And no bookstore can afford to have merchandise on the shelf that doesn't move. Uh, so, so it's it's no it's no different. A bookstore cares only about what the cover and the interior look like, the design. Libraries have a completely different point of view. They care about the content and they care about the index quite a few times, a lot of times. Yeah. But 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 Barnes and Noble is a retailer, and like any other retailer, they want to put products on their shelf that look good and that will attract buyers. And not to put too fine a point on it, but the, the reason that there are these typographic conventions, the reason that the traditions of typesetting exist is primarily 
because after centuries of putting words on on page, the people who make money from books discovered the the things that helped books sell the most or help people read the most and get the most out of books, which in turn led to to more. So those traditions, those reasons, um, they have a commercial aspect behind them. Well, well, that's true. If you think about it now, uh, you know, major publishers. If it was possible for a major publisher to put out a book, and 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 by allowing the, the their secretary to format it, they would not spend money on cover design and interior yeah. design and layout. Uh, but they know that they have to because that's what sells the book. So, so in one sense, it's 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 silly almost for people to think that. They can enter the the brutally competitive industry of book publishing with an inferior product because the customer is not going to not going to forgive that any more than they forgive a shoddy product in, of any kind. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so it's just hard to imagine why this uh, narrative of do it yourself has taken hold as it has. You know what? Uh, you use this analogy some somewhere before. Michelle, I'm I'm almost dead sure it was you. That if you see someone who is in a poorly made suit, you may not you don't have to be a tailor to appreciate the fact that the suit looks awful. Mm-hmm. It's the same way. I did with, say that. Say again. I did say that, and and uh, same thing with a good suit, right? When when you walk into someone, uh, you know, say a lawyer's office, and everyone. There is wearing two thousand dollar suits. You you know it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I hope there's not too many lawyers listening. Oh well, there might be one or two, but we'll forgive them. <laughs> we'll forgive them. Oh, best best lawyer joke ever. Why don't sharks eat lawyers? Professional. I don't know. I don't know why. Professional courtesy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so now that we've offended lawyers, we've got to move on to uh, doctors, and then, uh, let's see, who would be after doctors? Dentists, I guess. Um, all right, so getting down into the uh, the, nitty, the nitty-gritty. Michelle, if you're ready, let's dive into the, um, the slides that you've so graciously provided us with, uh, and they're going to be, uh, they're posted on the page alongside the, the show notes. So if, you, uh, if uh, you're listening and you have the opportunity to go download them so that you can follow along visually and uh, Michelle can walk us through what we've been talking about for quite a few minutes, what it literally looks like on paper. Well, sure. I'll be, I'll be happy to do that. Um, what we want a book to do when people first encounter it is, is make them say, wow, I like that. I've never seen that before. And that is the function of book design more than anything else. Like I said before, we want them to say to themselves, I need this book. This is the book I'm looking for and not move on to the next title on the shelf or the next book down the line on the Amazon page. So so there's a lot of ways we do that. And there's a lot of uh, elements that have to work together. Uh, it's the layout and the design. It's the typography. It's the trim size and the binding style. It's even the paper. Although so many books are purchased online now that people don't get to see the paper when they make that purchase decision. But they do get to see it and feel it and touch it when the package arrives. So all of these things 
or, or what designers think about when we when we think about how to make your book the very best it can be and, and, and tell your message in the very best way that we can. And the most important aspect of book design is that your book has to look like what it is. Now, people just from experience, from life experience, they expect different books to look different ways. You know, for example, a gift book with, with full-color uh, typography and a few words on the page and usually a square format. Um, it tells people this is a coffee table book. This is an inspirational book. Such as the, the book we're looking at on, uh, on slide six, The Butterfly Effect? Yeah. See, nobody has to tell us that that's an inspirational book or a high-value gift that we might want to give to somebody. The design tells us that right. uh, before we have a chance to think about it. And if, if you go to the next slide, uh, the next example is a test preparation guide. Now, the layout choices and the typesetting choices we would make for that type of book are entirely different because the function is different. We want students to be able to access the information and to move from one paragraph to another easily and be able to retain the information that they're trying to study. And so we come up with a layout that that does that. In this case, two colors, blue and black, uh, wide outside margin to give the student room to make notes if that's what they want to do, and a space between the paragraphs to let them navigate from one place to another. Now, the third example is Dancing with Myself by Billy Idol. Now, that's a, that's a novel. And it doesn't have to be designed in a boring way just because it's a novel, uh, but we would do something entirely different with with novels than we would with test books or or business books or gift books. So these are the things that designers are are experienced in doing for you. Yeah, you know, you and I we've done um we've done a couple of blog posts together where we talked about book uh, covers and talked about how important it is to have a genre-specific cover. So uh, a thriller is, um, is always going to be uh, probably dark with, uh, with some kind of eye-catching topography and it looks suspenseful and, and action-packed. A cookbook is always going to be bright and, and airy. It's always going to have some kind of food on some kind of surface, so it's always going to be a, a pie dish on a counter or pieces of, of fruit arranged in, on, a, on a table. A business book is going to be broad bands of color, lots of, of fonts, um, no or minimal uh, images on the, on the cover. So even from six feet away, you can look and at a glance and, and pretty much tell, okay, this is the fiction section, this is the cookbook section, this is the religious section, this is the business mm -hmm. section. And so you're saying with the interior of books that it's it's pretty much the same, maybe not with the genres, but with the, the purpose of the, the book. Well, that, that's right. It's all about what the designer has to do is control the reader experience and hopefully control that experience in a way that's beneficial to the reader so that they get the most out of the book. And there's different ways to do that. Uh, fonts, for example, it, you know, choosing the fonts for your book are not, it's not a matter of choosing the font you like, but choosing the font that is most readable 
for the type of text that you're presenting to the reader. And there's a whole science of, of, of font choice for that too. Uh, when people do lay out their own books or attempt to design their own books, they'll tend to overdo it with the fonts and, and maybe use something that is corny uh, because they, they just happen to like it. And, and so I guess you could say a designer kind of tamps down that, that impulse and, and makes sure that, that the fonts are actually doing a job. Because, because if the reader notices the fonts, then, then that means they're not concentrating on the message. So if you notice the typography in a book, it means the typographer has failed. What is that, that great quote that said, uh, great, great design is invisible? I don't, I don't know that one. I, I, I remember Steve Jobs had a, had a good one. He said that design is not about decoration; it's about communication. Yeah. Yeah, like that. and that, and that's really even more true in book design than in any other kind of design. We, we have to communicate that message to our buyers so that they understand what we're trying to get across. And I, I guess by in saying that you're already you already hit slide eleven. Um, you're talking about a designer's job, a designer underneath the publisher. A publisher's job is to manage the reader's experience. Typesetting is how we do that. Mm -hmm. That's correct. So uh, so and then going down to slide twelve here, uh, back to that study guide I was talking about before. We have a line space between the paragraphs, and and that's just that's not an arbitrary choice, we, we put that line space in there so that we can allow the student to, to grasp a chunk of material at a time. If we were to run all that text together uh, in the way we do for novels, for example, then studying would be much more difficult. It would be much more difficult to find your place and go back to it when you need to read something again. So, so that's where the science of, of typography comes in. And in slide 13, I'm showing a novel. And, and in a novel, we want just the opposite. We want people to stay engaged with the story. We don't want to interrupt them with a line of space between each paragraph. And that's a mistake you'll often see in do-it-yourself layouts because the author will say, well, I like a space between the paragraphs. But that's really going to interfere with the reader's experience if, you're, if you are um, – publishing a novel. I had and, never and noticed that. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense now that you pointed out, but it never crossed my mind before, you know, having the information, chunks of information like you do in, in slide 12 versus the, the, the flow of, of text that you want in slide uh, 13 here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so the point is that, that, you know, we're trained for this. And, and there's more to it than people think, and there's way more to it than the self-publishing companies are telling people. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's uh, that. I guess in a nutshell is my message. What well, do you have? Do you have time? Can we go on to some of this other? Um, I hate to call it minutia because it's uh, it's really important. But these kind of really nitty gritty things that, um, well, you said one time it uh, it gives it puts the the gray in typesetter's hair, right? It's the things that you <laughs> lose your mind on. Sure, I, I'd be happy to go through it. In um, in slide fourteen, for example, there's an issue in typesetting called kerning, and that word refers to the space between the letters in a in a word. 
so if you see what I've, I've got there, I've typeset the word yesterday in two different ways. The first example is how that word would come out from um, just typing it in Microsoft Word or even in a, in a designer's page layout program without any intervention from the typesetter. And you can see the spacing between the letters is not quite even. And the period after the word is, is kind of out there, hanging out there, uh, disconnected from the word. The space between the Y and the E is a little too big. And so when a typesetter goes in there and corrects those issues and tucks all those letters nicely together and brings the period in at the end, you can see that that hangs together like a word, more so than the example above. So, so that sounds like I'm insane, right? But, but, but why is that important? It's important because when we read, we do not look at the letters one at a time. We look at words one at a time. And we take in that whole word as a unit. So if we make the reader's brain work hard with poorly spaced type, it's going to tire their eyes. And it's going, it's, the text is going to seem hard to read, and it's going to distract them. And they could decide that they don't like your book. Yeah, and, I mean, and so, you're just giving us the example of, of one word, but you multiply that by a typical book, 50 or 60 or 70,000 words. You do this 70,000 times where your brain has to work that much harder. Your eyes have to take up that much extra space. And then there's also the um, um, the commercial aspect of it. So if your words are closer together, means that you take up less pages, means that uh, you have less pages in your book, means that your book is cheaper to uh, to print. That's correct. And, and I show that on, on slide 15. Now you can see the top example, uh, the, the word spacing in justified text is another way you can tell the difference between poor typesetting and good typesetting. Uh, the top example is a paragraph from a book that was laid out by an author using a Microsoft Word template. Now, it, he happened to choose Arial as the type font, which, which I would never do. That's, it's the wrong font for any kind of, almost any kind of book. But you can see the word spacing varies quite a bit. There are some words, some lines that are very tight and some lines that are very loose. Yeah. Um, apparently because this author t did not turn on hyphenation. And that's another thing we hear often. Well, I don't like hyphens. Well, I, I know you don't like hyphens, but you're really getting in the way of your reader's comprehension if you don't use them. So, because when the machine is asked to justify text on the left and on the right, and you tell the machine not to use hyphens, the only way it can do that is to add big gaps between the words. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't add those big gaps all the time. So what you wind up with type is that tight and loose, a mixture of tight and loose lines, which is very distracting. Right. So in the bottom example on that same slide 15, it's, uh, I, I recreated the same size type, the same font, the same, and you can see the spacing is much more even and less distracting because there are hyphens. And additionally, the paragraph is now seven lines instead of eight. So that doesn't sound like a big difference, but with the average book page containing 30 lines of type or so, that small difference can reduce your page count and your printing costs by around 12%. So it, it's, it's important. It's important to the reader and it's important to you as a business person because 
you want to maximize the dollars that you spend on this project so that you can make more money. Right. Um, so, so the next slide, slide 16, is an example of what we call rivers of white. And this, it's another issue that typesetters will routinely fix when we see it happen. Now, this is fake text because just to demonstrate the problem. But sometimes when you, when you set a block of text, the, the word spaces will align in, an, in a very unfortunate way. And a good typesetter will, will see this and will adjust the spacing to get rid of that odd pattern that, that is what we call a, a river of white in the text. Yeah, it's almost like um, I've got a, a, a graphic design friend who loves uh, negative space. Right, so it's the, the the shapes. They're not really shapes, but they're shapes that are suggested by everything else that's around them. So here, it's like having a. This would be a. What is this? A back, a backslash, um, mm -hmm. that you see and you kind of see it, even though it's not really there. But just coincidentally, because the um, the spacing fell in uh, in just that way. Okay, so looking at slide 19 is my last example of bad typography, and this is this issue is called ladders. And a ladder is when you have too many hyphens in a row, and and that's something that distracts the reader quite a bit. So this is a, you know one of one of many book design rules that that, that typesetters deal with on on a regular basis. Uh, some of the other rules around hyphens are that. Uh, you shouldn't have a hyphen after two letters. Uh, you should never hyphenate a proper noun. You should never have four hyphens in a row. And and so these are all things that, taken together, make a book page look like a book and not like something that we did in Microsoft Word. So that's um, that's another issue that, that typesetters deal with all the time. Like you say, all of these things from uh, an outsider's perspective may look a little nitpicky or may look um, almost unimportant, but whenever you take into account all of these, um, all of these little uh, conventions times 100, 150, 200, 300 pages, um, you, you start talking about real differences in whether the reader picks up the book and, and reads another chapter or finally puts it down just because for some reason they just they don't enjoy reading the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, and and what what in my in my experience talking to authors what 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 the do it yourself authors usually do is they look only at their own book as they're creating it. Um yeah. and of course it it it's it's fine to do that but it but it's not the whole picture. So I tell people okay, if you want to try to do it yourself, go ahead. But then take your creation to your local Barnes and Noble, and I want you to compare what you did to a professionally designed book from a major publisher on the shelf at Barnes and Noble. And I have no doubt whatsoever that you would see a difference. And so will your buyers. And uh, I think that it's. I think that that. Sooner or later, the industry has to come back into into balance. I think over the last you know, 15 years or so, with um, the walls of self-publishing uh, or the walls to publishing that have come tumbling down, um, the advent of technology, being able to to 
hire um, independent professionals um, like you versus having to go to a, a publisher um, to, to find that talent. All of those things have shaken up the industry quite a bit. But I've got to believe that it won't be but a few more years before things kind of find an equilibrium and people, you know, realize that, you know, I wanted to do this book and I've only sold 10 copies. Nine of those were to uh, my family members. So maybe I should go talk to a professional and find out what professionals do to sell professional-grade books. Well, I certainly hope you're right, Derek. Um, you know, it's uh, interestingly enough, it's some of the big publishers are, are creating self-publishing company arms uh, to to mislead authors. So uh, I don't know where it's going to shake out. Uh, they they see the money and they're going after it and 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 actually doubling down on 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 the misleading messages that authors are given. So I, I don't know. I I'd like to think that buyers will always appreciate quality and they will always vote with their dollars and 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 that yeah. um, and that's going to take care of the problem. Yeah, I think so. Well, in the very least, I hope so. Well, Michelle, we're running up against the, the clock here. Um, so I want to uh, give you an opportunity. Would you mind um, doing two things? One, sharing a couple of different uh, books that uh, that we could go read for uh, for reference or something that it maybe introduces people to typesetting or book design in, in general, some, some great books you recommend. And two, giving people uh, a little bit of additional information if they want to to um, to get a hold of you. I will start off that book list by saying uh, Publish Like the Pros, which you graciously give away um, on your website for free, uh, at least the um, the the e-version, the e-book. Um, yes, I do. I, it's, I wrote Publish Like the Pros, A Brief Guide to Quality Self-Publishing. And you can download that at 1106design.com. And hopefully it's got some good tips in there for if you want to learn how real publishers produce a book and, and, and why it makes a difference for your book in the end. In, in the slides here that, that, that uh, Derek is going to make available to you, I have a recommended reading list with you know, a dozen books or so, eight or ten books on, on typesetting. One of them is... Uh, the Digital Type Design Guide, and it's called The Page Designer's Guide to Working with Type. And that will give you a good view of all the issues involved that are involved in book design and type, working with type in general. And, and even if you're not going to do a book yourself, knowing about typography is useful because it will help you make better documents, uh, whatever kind of documents you're making. Um, another one, which is a really great remedy for insomnia, is called the Complete Manual of Typography, a guide, a guide to setting perfect type. And <laughs> I have to keep laughing, right? And then there's the, another one called Stop, Stop Stealing Sheep and Find Out How Type Works by Eric Speakerman. And that's really a very lighthearted, funny look, but with a serious message of how to make your words um, uh, most accessible to your readers, which is important no matter what you're doing with those words. Cool. You've made it easy for us, giving us the whole uh, the whole list. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And I and I, I hope I was able to provide a couple of useful tips today to your audience, and I thank everybody for listening. Well, um, 
Michelle, so in addition to uh, your website, you also do uh, Mentoring Mondays. So tell everybody if they want to uh, go follow you on Mentoring uh, Mondays how to how to get in touch with you. Oh, sure. That's every Monday morning except for federal holidays. I, I get on the phone. We do a conference call with Judith Bryles, who is known as the Book Shepherd, and she is another expert in, in, in book publishing, very knowledgeable person. She's the author of 30 books herself, some of them traditionally published, and she now spends her time uh, coaching authors uh, at the very highest level. And so at noon Eastern time, every Monday morning, you can dial in to uh, 218-632-9854, I'm sorry, and the access code is 123-987-4444, and Judith and I will answer your questions about anything related to publishing. It's not every day you've got uh, two experts like that that uh, make themselves available for uh, for any Q&A that, that comes up. That's generous of you, Michelle. Well, we're, we, we need to counter the message of the bad message, the messages that I just went into. And so, you know, that's one of the ways we can do it. Well, Michelle, thank you again so much for um, uh, sharing your, your expertise and, and uh, you know, your well, I'm not going to count the, the years. <laughs> you already made the joke about <laughs> dating yourself. But your many years of, uh, of expertise in uh, in typesetting from back whenever y'all were pouring molten lead to, uh, to doing it in, uh, in uh, on computer now. So I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Derek. I appreciate the opportunity, and I'll be happy to answer any questions that your listeners have anytime. Great. Thanks again. Thank you.